0: One of the things that I would love to help other people understand is when you approach people, don't just approach people because you admire them for where they are or what they do or their famous name or whatever that it would be. Like bring a problem that would actually um, allow you to be an equal to them. So that, you know, when you guys are speaking together, there is a constant building of ideas. There is a constant um, curiosity, inspiration.
1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Inner Wealth, the Forbes Ignite podcast. I'm your host, Nicole Cacall, CEO of Forbes Ignite. And every week I'll be sharing with you my conversations with unique, creative, and innovative people across all different industries. These are people who are intellectually curious explorers who are also redefining what it means to be successful today. From personal to professional, we cover it all to understand what drives our guests to blaze their own trails and create nimble solutions within the industries that touch each of our lives. Our guest today is Jerome Goh, a senior designer with an impressive 20-year career at IDEO. I was really excited to speak with Jerome because he is one of the rarest kinds of people to learn from. He teaches through inspiration and truly believes in the positivity of human beings. It is through this kind of inspiration that you can be creative to solve the world's most daunting challenges. We also talk about great examples of how organizations can lead through human-centered design. My conversations with Jerome are so energizing, and I always learn something new, where I'm reminded of our ability to make a genuine impact in the world. I know you'll love what he has to say. Here's our chat. Thank you so much again, Jerome, for joining me. And I'm so excited to be speaking with you. We um, we talk on a regular basis, on a fairly regular basis. And um, since being at Parsons, where you were my professor for two classes, not just one, but two very monumental classes that were really fundamental to my approach and the work that I do. I'm glad that we were able to keep in touch and also ideate together around the work that we're both doing. So it's great to have you here. So thank you so much for joining.
0: No problem. Um, I've, I've always actually enjoyed my conversations with you. I think I've s- said this before with you. Um, one thing, um, good and bad, And I don't know whether, you know, we've actually said this, but I have worked at IDEO for now, um, this is my 20th year. I've worked there for a long time, but there is a reason why I've worked there for a long time, primarily because it's a very, it's a company that's very enlightened and I try and bring a lot of the processes also to the way that I teach. But one of the things about one of the downfalls about being at IDEO is that you get approached by all kinds of people all the time to actually help them in all kinds of things. I, I, I don't want to make this sound terribly selfish, but there's always something that I learn from you as well, right? It's never a one-way street where you are like, oh, just because you're a younger person that, you know, it's just me giving you all of that information. I think for me, one of the things that I really enjoy as a designer is um, I've been at this for a long, long time, but the reason why I'm still sticking to it is I approach this with a curiosity um, where it would allow me to learn. And this is such a wonderful thing. And that's the reason why I always enjoy having these conversations with you. Oh,
1: I really appreciate that. Thank you so much, Jerome. I feel like who's interviewing you, who here, but, um, I really enjoy speaking with you. And I learn every single conversation that I have with you. I always learn something new and we're always building on that. Like you said, there's always something to build upon. And I think, I think before we could ever get to that stage, there had to be a foundation. And something that I've always admired about you, um, even when you were teaching and I was a student in one of your classes, one of the things that always resonated with me was how you really pushed us to think beyond the obvious, to finding those non-obvious sources of inspiration. And that's been fundamental to, to pretty much how I approach my work. And then when I pay it forward and when I pass that on, that's something that sticks with me. And the thing is, you never really said those words per se, but you demonstrated it. And by demonstrating it and teaching people how to to think with that capacity, you're teaching someone a lifetime of learning. And so that's the reason why this is so regenerative, how we are always building on top of each other's different ideas, different approaches, different work styles. There's, there's always something new. So I appreciate that.
0: I think I think that's a very, very interesting point that you bring to the table. I've not thought very much about, well, you know, I, I know that this is something that I do, right? And I know that this is something, and a lot of people have given me this feedback, this really positive feedback. But up to this point, um, this is not something that I've actually really thought very much about until I was asked to develop the syllabus for the course that you you were a student at, where I had to really sit down and read through some of the academic readings that I otherwise have always kind of pushed aside. Because for me, I've always taken the stance that, you know, I'm a practitioner, I'm not an academic, therefore these things have no bearing on my work. But, you know, eating some humble pie and actually reading through this made me realize that one of the things that we need to push out more to the world is this idea of being generative. I think I've seen so many students where it's so natural for us, at some point of time in our development from being children to somewhere in our schooling adulthood that we lose the ability to be generative and we become critical. Being critical alone, telling people this is wrong, this is not the way, this is less ideal, is okay because it points to where the problem is, but just ending it there is not going to help people solve the problem. You know, and, and, and what I really always try and do is to add the next bit to say like, but if you did it this way, right. Or if you used your creativity as a way to inspire people so that people can have a road forward, I think it's a very, very fundamental thing that, um, I'm I'm glad that you've talked about this, because to me, I'm really thinking a lot more about this as I teach. And I'm trying to figure out how to teach this in a much more specific way so that students can understand this as well.
1: Yeah. But no, I think I'm 100 percent there with you and how you you consider yourself. Hey, the way I teach is I'm a practitioner. It's a learning by doing type of approach. And also the subject matter is very much. It's very much that way that you're going to internalize what you do. And you can only really learn so much from a textbook, or from literature, which is which is fine, which is nice. And one thing that I want to, that I'll never get tired of talking about. So I know that you've heard me talk about this so many times. When I was talking about impact investing, I at the time, I was still working in the finance world, I was working in investment management. And I was really passionate, still am still am very passionate about impact investing, although I'm not quite so fond of the term impact investing, but the whole notion of trying to um, generate positive financial return while also creating social good and social externalities for the public benefit. And there's something that you said that I felt like that was the light bulb moment for me. Everyone has one of those. Um, If you're lucky, you'll have that more frequently than not. But the light bulb moment for me was when I was showing my research and I said, people just need people just need proof. They need proof that their dollars are going to where they want it to go. We just need to be transparent. And you said, it's not so much the transparency is what they're looking for. It's the validation. And that was just mind blowing to me. So that's my long tangent about that. And I, I just love telling that story because that it's, it's so Jerome, it's so you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, just to give you a little bit more context to the story, and I don't know whether I explained this to you. Um, the reason why I gave you the response was because of the work that I did previously, right? Um, I did this piece of work that was around giving. And it was primarily also based on a financial uh, product, basically, where what they were trying to do is, um, I forget the name of the product now, but it's when you have too much money at the end of the year. And then it would all be taxed. And what your accountant would tell you to do is to actually port the money into um, uh, a, a charitable organization so that you can defer, it's a deferred fund. Yes, exactly. It's a deferred fund kind of um, product. And in order to, but, but when, you, when you listen to that, right? Like, like a lot of financial products, um, you would think that, oh, it's just a technical thing. But when we actually looked at it and the value that it brought to people, it was primarily about giving. And the, the issue that they had was because people didn't understand that it was about giving and people, a lot of accountants phrase that as, or use that as a way to create these um, outlets for their clients, that people looked at it as a way to defer their tax. But when we actually started to phrase that as giving, then people looked at it in a different way. And when we went, and one of the things that was fascinating about giving, right? Fascinating about giving, when we started to do the research is that when, when you actually focus on giving itself, people wanted to know the impact and the outcome. People wanted to know what was going to happen to the money. So a, a really great example is we know that there are lots of rich people in the world. Like, for example, you know, Bill Gates or Warren Buffett, right? And you would think that because they have so much money, you know, coming out of everywhere that you could actually ask them for money to go invest in some kind of like... Um, uh, um, non-profit-like uh, um, benefit. The reason why they wouldn't give that is because it doesn't, it doesn't strike them as something that's important to them, which is what impact investing really is about, right? So that's the reason why he actually focuses on things like education, for example. And when he focuses on education, there are very, very specific outcomes of education that he wants to look at. which is the reason why this is very interesting, which is the reason why I said what I said. So a lot of it actually comes from understanding the mind of the consumer. And in this particular case, it was a deep dive into giving that gave me a lot of these very interesting insights that if you didn't go into, you wouldn't actually understand very much about giving itself.
1: Yeah, no, but thank you for sharing that. And that I greatly benefited from your work, and also subsequently learning from the residual lessons from all the work that you did. But it just takes an experienced type of thinker, an experienced type of business designer to be able to lead Lead a team, lead a team, and then be able to tell a classroom, this is what I'm continuing to learn um, as a practitioner, and this is how you can learn from this, even though we may not currently be in the field right at that moment. So I really do appreciate that. And there's one thing that really intrigued me. You were talking about how basically everyone, because you work at IDEO, everyone is always asking either for advice or they're asking for you to be their mentor. How are you guys exchanging knowledge from one practitioner to another? And I, this may not be the answer, but I'd love to know more about the wine and dine series that you guys, that you told me about right before we got on this call
0: um you know this uh, this is a very, very interesting um topic area um, we We've tried to do a lot of things in terms of trying to exchange knowledge but in in the in the way that ideO practices today, the best knowledge transfer is when you work with a person. There's really no other way to do it right um I think when you work with a person, you understand a lot of the intricacies of the way that the person would work. Um, the way that they would lead, the way that they would process information, the way that they would administer, the way that they would deal with clients, the way that they would um, even like figure out how to deal with the changing energy dynamics of a team, for example. Now, once you actually start to work with a person, you start to get to know the rhythms of the person and you start to understand when a person is flagging and when a person is at their creative best. And I've I've actually been in these situations enough where I'm so in sync with the person that we can feel each other's energy in a presentation and to know when to take over and when to allow the person to speak, right? Because all of us can't possibly speak all the way through a four-hour presentation, right? But you can see when your teammate actually, you know, they they know when to jump in to grasp at the information and explain it in the way where it becomes really clear to a client, and then the energy will start to flag, and then you will take over, right? And that's the like the melding of minds where that's the perfect team. And when that actually happens, you realize that you have this synergy with the person and that, um, and and a lot of the trans, the transference of the knowledge actually doesn't come from speaking, like what we usually do. It comes from actually doing and observe observing how people operate. Because you know, like like I said in the beginning of the podcast, it's not that because I'm super experienced that you know all the younger people want to work with me. I, on the one hand, want to work with a lot of these younger people too, because all of us. What we try and do at IDEO is to hire people that have a very interesting and unique point of view, right? It's it's not like other agencies where, you know, like I'm the big senior star and then everybody else is under me and then I'm bringing up all of these young designers. No, all of these young designers are as good as I am. They are a lot more experienced in other areas that I'm not experienced in. And when we work together, we form what we call this wicked kind of a team we were able to solve amazing, like give solutions, amazing solutions to what would be wicked problems.
1: I love that. I love that idea of the wicked team and not just having interdisciplinary teams, but these are people that you are constantly finding inspiration from, that you're learning from each other. And so I think you've heard me talk about this a lot how we're trying to quote unquote disrupt the whole mentor mentee model because. Like you just said in the very beginning of this call, we're learning from each other. It's exactly what you were just describing. It's an exchange. I really feel like these are other things that I learned from you as well. When we talk about information transfer, that's no better than copying and pasting from a document and sending it in an email. Absolutely. Right. And when we talk about knowledge transfer, this is something that someone has internalized and it, it stems from experience. And that's something that you, that's, that's it's priceless. And so it really separates someone from being a really valued person in a, in a working relationship. And I love how you say that, you know, you can be so in sync with somebody and you can really feed off of their energy and you can really understand if they're flagging or if you should take over in the, in the presentation, you know, just as a couple of examples. But I love that. And I feel like those types of working relationships, business relationships are so rare.
0: One, one, uh, and another way to look at this, right? And, and I realized this, um, I, di- I didn't know about this until way into my career at IDEO when I was asked to go to China and to bring up a whole new group of really young designers. That um, one of the things that's very interesting about a structure like IDEO is a lot of us have a lot of very senior people that we work with. And because all these senior people are not molded from the same mold. They are all like very, very experienced in different things. When you start to work with these people, you acquire a little bit of each of their skills and you start to actually also um, want to say like, oh, I really admire the way that this person practices. And I want to actually learn a lot more from this person. So I will work on projects where this person is going to work on as well. So that, you know, we can start to actually... um, not learn, but you know, start to actually imbue some of the qualities that they have. So a lot of the things that you that that you see from me are actually qualities that I've learned from other people as well, right? So this is a very interesting kind of an osmotic process. It's not one of those things where you actually sit down and tell people like, okay, this is the way that you do things, which is a very traditional kind of like mentor mentee model. It's when you actually work together that you actually start to have a respect for each other and you're able to then feed off of each other's creative energies to then create a product that would be amazing.
1: I love that you brought up that you're, this is um, learning by osmosis and you are essentially an amalgamation of all of the other people whose qualities that you admire and qualities that you that you either adopt or you either avoid. Um, And um, that really poses a very interesting question. How can we, as people who exchange knowledge with one another and create new knowledge, how are we also transferring and being that bridge between different qualities that we can all learn from each other as an amalgamation of these specific positive qualities that we want to to really have in our our culture?
0: That's a really, really good question. So, you know, yesterday there was an article somewhere, I think I read it in the New York Times, if I'm not mistaken, I could be mistaken, but it was an article that was kind of shocking, right? It talked about how Tim Cook could be quite dominating and intimidating behind the scenes, right? And it talked about how, like, he gives these, this air of grandfatherliness you know, when he gives these, these speeches, but behind closed doors at Apple, he can be a dragon, right? Now, that's a very, very interesting observation because, and, and I've said this to you before, um, when I I, 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 I train as a designer. And one thing that I really tried, now I did not know this, but now I actually try to not do this at all. Design school, architecture school, all of these creative schools actually teach you very, very bad habits, right? It it teaches you to be negative. It teaches you to be elitist. It teaches you to poo-poo on other people's work that you don't think is great quality. It teaches you to be extremely negative, right? And all of these are actually very, very damaging um, qualities that actually destroy the culture of an organization. Now, I'm going to say something that sounds really foofy and like fluffy and, you know, Northern California or whatever that you want to call it. Like one of the reasons why I think IDEO, I'm, I'm able to do this and absorb all of this is because of the fact that we, are inherently, we inherently believe in the positivity of people. We try and as much as possible create a positive atmosphere so that people would be at their creative best. Right? This is very, very, very important. I remember um, and I don't know whether I told you the story. Um, one of, I, I have quite a lot of very, very bad experiences at IDEO, but one of the ones that I remember to this day is, um, a certain company that I will not mention at all, that is also in New York. And I remember that every time that we go to that meeting, um, the very first thing that will come up from their mouths is if we don't like your idea, we'll sue you. Right. That's the way that they start each meeting. I remember too that at that point of time, uh, the project lead um, would cry every time she would leave a meeting because of the incredibly negative energy that comes from the meeting itself. Because one of the things about us as human beings is that when somebody starts to say something at a meeting, that energy pervades all the way through the rest of the meeting and you cannot change that energy in any way, shape or form right? And so when you start with that very negative energy, it actually invites all the rest of the clients to be extremely negative and extremely critical of the work that we do with no way to actually hold back at all because it was started that way, right? And I found that, you know, when you are in that kind of a situation, you will go through this kind of incredible um, rendering of your soul, if you will, as creative people you would be so destroyed by that meeting that you can in no way be creative for about two weeks before you recover. And before people will tell you like, oh, you just have to ignore this. You know, they're trying to, they had a bad meeting before, whatever other excuse that people are trying to give you, reasoning to actually get you out of your doldrums. And these are things that you don't want to do with people. When you actually destroy people that way, you really destroy them and it just destroys their ability to be able to perform in any way, shape or form. Which is the reason why for us, we try to not do that at all. We try to believe in people, we try to you know, focus on the positive. And I try and bring that to my class environment as well, right? because it's always about trying to be as generative and positive and encouraging as possible so that people are not destroyed, you know, during our feedback or comments or whatever that it would be.
1: Call it Northern California, whatever you want. I believe in that. I really believe in believing in the positivity of people because in a way you are really protecting that type of energy. You're protecting the ability for people to to be creative. And I know we always talk about creative confidence and how to instill The confidence in being creative because that's where a lot of innovation happens and creativity is the cornerstone of innovation. And as fluffy as that sounds, it's true. And the only way to be truly creative is to really be to really feel like you have that psychological safety to be able Mm -hmm. to do that, no matter whether or not you respect that or not. um, These are all human beings at the end of the day. So I'm really glad that you brought that up and that um, I'll never complain about another <laughs> client experience ever again after hearing that.
0: Oh, I mean, you know what, one of the things that I actually also did not mention is um, the way that it would start with these types of behaviors is from the top. If you are a leader, you know, and I would encourage you to adopt ways to talk to people where it's about offering alternatives rather than stopping something. Right. When you actually say like, this is not the direction to go, we should stop here. There is no, it's very unequivocable, right? There's no way for people to argue with you when you say that. But when you say things like, what if we looked at it in this other way, right? And when you give people an option to actually look at things in another way, then you not only are directing people, right? I'm not saying that just because you want to be good that you're not directing people. There are ways to direct people where you can allow them to look at new opportunities. And I have to tell you, I did say that I came from this kind of like very negative, like teaching uh, education experience. It took me years and years and years to bite my tongue to be able to go from like, the first thing that I want to say is that this is a sucky idea to like, What if you thought about looking at it in this different way? There are so much more words when you say that, but when you say that it enables so much more. It does take quite a lot of effort.
1: Yeah, it does. It absolutely does. And I'm just getting into, I just wrapped up my first semester of teaching. Also, we're not teaching the same course by any means, but the same school. And it's, yeah, there's a lot of learning, there's all this continual learning that I'm trying to either unlearn. um, And I've I've learned a lot from understanding the qualities that I admire. And so I try to embody that as much as I can. And um, yeah, so I had no idea that. (laughs) Thank you for biting your tongue as I was presenting my ideas, by the way.
0: (laughs) Well, I, I, you know, by that time, you know, I actually understood too that one of the things that I don't know whether I have told you this, but um, one of the things that I tried to do in my classes was to bring uh, mutual respect to students. It doesn't mean that if I was, you were a student of mine that I would talk down to you, right? And one of the things that I tried to do is to make sure that if I respect the students, and I, I found this, maybe I should stop the story first and talk about why I did this, right? Which is a very, very interesting thing. When I first started teaching, one of the things that I feared the most was to chase after students either because they wouldn't show up or because they didn't do the homework or anything like that. So one of the things that I did was I said, I'm going to use the same approach that I would at IDEO to actually teach, which is basically a mutual respect for everybody. There, I'm not more, I'm not better than you. And everybody has things to learn from each other, right? And up to this day, I'm very thankful to say that I have not chased after any student. And I want to say that the reason why this is the case is because, you know, I've created this open environment where students are encouraged to do what they do based on the fact that I see you guys as equals.
1: And it worked. It absolutely works because um, I think also the fact that you don't have to chase after people is the fact that they want to be there. You're creating this, like you said, an open environment for them to contribute and without without being negative about their ideas, they really feel that safety of being able to contribute. And I think that's monumental. And there are still a lot of workplaces that don't have that, that don't get it right in that aspect.
0: I'm actually surprised that to this day, that there are companies who don't see the employees as people, right? And the company where I talked about where they started by actually saying suing you, um, we, and there's more stories to this, right? And I wanted to tell you the rest of the story. One very interesting thing was um, we, we learned that one of the ways that they actually controlled their uh, sales environment was to have, so in China, for example, they have over 300 doors where they were sold, selling their product. And one of the things that they had to do, which was very punitive, was that at the end of each day, the worst they, they would collect all of the data from each and every one of these doors and the worst performing door had to explain why is it that they perform badly and that they have to rectify the situation with solutions for tomorrow right this is something that they had to do at 10 pm every day and then when we actually started to talk about the fact that you know um, one of the things that we learned in the research is um, a lot of the customers said that your salespeople are really pushy and that that's the reason why they don't want to approach this particular um, brand. Um, And then we're like, guess why they're pushy? Because nobody wants to perform really badly. So everybody is pushed to perform well. Right. And they were saying like, Oh, don't worry. We can change that. We can, you know, let the metrics go and allow the salespeople to be, you know, much more focus on the well-being of the consumer, for example. And we were like, no, that's impossible. You're not going to be able to do that because your, your structure from the very top all the way down is punitive. That's the way that you work. That's the way that you will always work, which is really, really an amazing contrast, right, to another story that I wanted to tell you. So this is a very, very interesting story. Um, so um, I've been in China for quite a few years. And one of the things that in the very early ages of China is we would use doing a lot of retail. Retail has always had a problem with salespeople because at that point of time in China, people didn't understand service. And the way that they would sell anything is they would immediately jump on anybody who would come into your store and said, if you bought this, I'm gonna give you know a set of plates and like a quart of candy to you. Would you like to buy it? Right." And it doesn't really matter what you're buying, whether it's like um, Adidas or whether it's like $20,000 TV, that's the way that they sold things, because that's the background that they came from. So there was a noodle company that was quite famous called Ding Tai Feng, and they are a very famous Taiwanese company. And I've been going to that shop in China for a long time, and one of the most amazing things is that they have amazing service. The third time that I went there, they started calling me by name, and they said, would you like your regular stuff? like that you usually order. And I'm like, wow, this is really amazing. How do you, like, how do you remember me? And they were like telling me all of these things and they were amazing and they were, you know, serviced by smiles and all that kind of stuff. And so we decided that we had to interview the manager because we had to understand what was their secret because trying to train Chinese people was incredibly hard. And the way that he replied was so shocking, but yet so obvious at the same time. And he said, there really is no secret. You just need to treat people like family. And, and, and he had the most amazing story. He talked about the fact that, you know, we have all of these stores in China and every time that anybody has a, celib- anybody has a birthday, the, the, the person who started the company who sits in Taiwan would handwrite a letter to your parents. Wow. To actually thank them for allowing their kids to serve <laughs> at the company. How can you say no to a company like that, right?
1: That's amazing. I love that idea.
0: It's these kind of stories that you see the contrast between two companies. One is incredibly negative and one is so focused on the people and treating people like family that even they don't want to leave. Like those are amazing stories that really inspire you to say like, definitely don't want to be the first company and want to be more like the second company.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Those. You're right. It, it sounds so simple. And if you were to bring this to any regular old board meeting, for example, they might laugh you out of the room. But really, when they really think about the after effects, the long term effects, and the customer experience of what you're doing, but I, I really I love that idea of just handwriting a note to your employees' parents.
0: I mean. It, it sounds like a lovely story, but if you think about it, right, it's so easy to say no. It's so easy to pe- be punitive. It's so easy to say, like, how can you account for this? Like, give me the numbers. But it's so hard. Like, when you think about this person, like the founder of the company, who has, you know, 200 stores around the world that he would actually bother to do this, it takes a lot of effort, but the effort is rewarded by the fact that they are one of the most successful companies, right, in Asia, which... It's a really amazing story.
1: I love that. I love hearing these types of stories and these examples because it's really, that's really putting the money where your mouth is. It's if you really truly care about your employees and about them as people, then you're going to treat them like people. And more importantly, you're going to treat them like family. Absolutely. So Jerome, this has been such an enlightening conversation. Um, Again, I really, I always feel like we don't have enough time to speak, but... Um, it's always, always so great to catch up with you. And um, we're definitely going to have to turn this into a series.
0: Awesome. Thank, thanks. You know, one thing I want to say is that, Nicole, it's, it's a mutual exchange, right? Because we, we get so much from these conversations that I hope that we can continue this. And if you want to make this into a series of podcasts, that will be so much more amazing.
1: Absolutely. No, definitely. I will hold you to it. <laughs> That's it for this week's episode of Inner Wealth. I hope you enjoyed our conversation and that you'll join us next week as we continue to explore all the ways success is being redefined in our ever-changing world. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Instagram at Forbes Ignite for more thought-provoking content and opportunities to engage with us. I'm your host, Nicole Kakal. Thanks for joining us.